Well, thank you very much. It's a great honor to have the Prime Minister of Ireland. Uh, we've become fast friends. We've uh, had some very, very good transactions taking place on trade and other things. Uh, as you know, he's in a very complicated position right now because of Brexit. You're going to have to tell me what's happening. You're going to have to perhaps tell the world what's happening, because I'm not sure anybody knows. But uh, very, very special country, uh, so many friends, and uh, you're doing a great job. Very popular man doing a wonderful job. The people love him, and that's very important. And uh, thank you very much for being with us. Welcome back to Banter, the official policy podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Matt Winesett, and I'm joined, as always, by Max Frost. Hello, Max. Hi, Matt. How's it going? It's going pretty well. UVA to the final four. We'll save, we'll save that to the end, but <laughs> yeah, it's going pretty well. We have a great show for you today. We interviewed Ambassador Daniel Mulhall. He became Ireland's ambassador to the United States in August of 2017. He's also served as Ireland's ambassador to Malaysia, Ireland's ambassador to Germany, and Ireland's ambassador in London. He's the author or editor of numerous books, and he's an expert in, in modern Irish history. We had a great interview with Ambassador Mulhall. We covered everything from Brexit to Irish poetry to his favorite types of beer. So without further ado, here's Ambassador Mulhall. Ambassador Mulhall, we're honored to have you here with us today. It's good to be here. So, first of all, I'm a big fan of your Twitter account. It's exposed me to a lot of Irish poetry. Um, that's how I first found out about you. So, we'll get to that later on. For now, we want to start with um, some talk about Brexit. You're here at AI today for an event called Does Brexit Matter? You're a diplomat. I'm sure you think Brexit matters significantly. So, I'd rather ask, why does Brexit matter? Well, it matters to Ireland because of our very close relationship with the UK the fact that we've had a 46-year partnership with the UK now within the European Union, which has delivered a lot of good things for Ireland and for Britain indeed, and it helped us, I believe, to to come together to um, broker uh, the peace agreement that brought uh, peace to Northern Ireland uh, in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement. So therefore, anything that disrupts that uh, partnership is a an unwelcome uh, development from an Irish point of view. And the, the problems with Brexit for us are that uh, we have a, an important trading relationship with the UK, which could be affected by Brexit, depending on how it pans out. And we don't yet know how it's going to uh, end up. Uh, we have the, the border on the island of Ireland, which has been open for the last 20 years. We want to keep it that way. And, but Brexit poses challenges with regard to the border, which is why there's such a big focus on the withdrawal agreement and the backstop, which is really a guarantee that uh, there can never be a border on the island of Ireland, come what may. So for Ireland, um, probably of all the European countries, we're the country most heavily affected, most seriously affected by Brexit because of having a land border with the UK, because of our unique relationship with them, because of the history of our two countries and our connections, because of the number of Irish people who who live in Britain, uh, 700,000 Irish people uh, live in Britain at the moment, many, many other connections. So most Irish people have, have strong links with the UK in one way or another. Um, so all of those things, none of them are, are going to be um, eliminated by Brexit, but they, Brexit introduces 
question marks and um, and uncertainties into a relationship that until Brexit uh, came on the horizon uh, three years ago was going through its best phase ever, I would say, in that we'd had an exchange of state visits for the first time in our history and our two countries had reached a kind of a comfortable partnership within the European Union, but also on a bilateral basis, which was having a positive effect around, across the board, including with regard to Northern Ireland. We definitely want to get into Irish and UK relations at some point as well, but we should note, first off, we're recording this on March 27th. The UK is voting on a series of indicative measures right now about what to do with Brexit. Yes. By the time we release this, who knows what will have happened. But one of the possible scenarios right now is the worst case, hard Brexit, so-called crashing out of the EU with no deal. What does that worst case scenario look like for Ireland? Well, that would be the worst possible outcome for everyone. It would be disruptive for um, the European Union, of course, because Britain is an important member and trading partner. Disruptive, very disruptive for Britain, which would face really serious challenges um, and uh, very bad for Ireland because of the close relationship we have with the UK and very bad for Northern Ireland because it would only add to the uncertainties that have affected Northern Ireland uh, since the referendum uh, result was declared. So I, I, we were very pleased to see the British Parliament uh, ruling out the option of a no-deal Brexit. I know that doesn't rule it out legally, but politically it is a very uh, strong signal being given that the, the, the British Parliament opposes that outcome. And the British Prime Minister has also said that she will not um, uh, support the idea of a no-deal Brexit either. So I hope that, we've, that, we're, that we're steering away from that um, possibility. But until we have an alternative scenario, obviously the no-deal threat is still somewhere around and we have to, to, to work on finding the solution or the British government and its parliament has to work on finding the solution which can definitively exclude a no deal by finding an alternative option for Britain. I saw somewhere the IMF put an esti- made an estimate that Brexit could cost Ireland up to 4% of its GDP um, over the coming five years, I think was the time that they gave. On the other hand, there's also been a lot, I know, is it 70 companies have relocated um, from Britain to Ireland? So I'm wondering, you know, what kind of steps is Ireland taking to, obviously you have to shield yourself, but there's also an opportunity to capitalize on yeah. the changes. You know, there's, it's clear that our approach has to be minimize the downsides of Brexit, particularly with regard to Northern Ireland, but also in our trading relationship with the UK, and maximize any upsides. And the most obvious upside for Ireland is the the likelihood that Ireland will become a considerably more attractive location for US foreign direct investment in the European Union. So in the future, a US company that has an interest in establishing a, posi- a presence within the European Union will, I think, look comparatively more favourably on uh, Ireland because we'll be the only English-speaking country left in the European Union. It's a place where the common law 
system applies where all the laws are written in English, which means that uh, any American businessman can read the laws of the land in Ireland in their own language. And uh, it means that the barriers uh, facing investment are, I think, correspondingly lower in Ireland. Britain will obviously become less attractive. Now, it won't become completely unattractive because there'll still be companies that will want to have a presence in Britain to service the British market. But servicing the European market from Britain will become more problematic from now on. There will be barriers of some kind, uh, depending on how Britain uh, eventually ends up leaving the European Union. So we've made the calculation that there's no version of Brexit that's good for Ireland. But there are upsides and downsides. And uh, the, the upside in particular is the the US investment uh, upside, which we intend to take full advantage of, while at the same time not not distracting ourselves from the reality that the best outcome for Ireland would be if Britain somehow decided uh, that it didn't want to leave the European Union and wanted to stay after all. We'd be very happy if that were to happen, notwithstanding that it would mean that perhaps some of the upsides that I mentioned might not come about to the same extent. Yeah, but could you just elaborate on that a little bit more, why it would be so bad if, if the, for Ireland if the UK did leave the European Union? Because, I mean, it does seem like if, if Dublin and Ireland became the best spot for foreign investment and companies moving to Ireland instead of going to the UK, that seems like there is a chance that Ireland comes out ahead in that situation. Or is it like, why is it such, why is it so troubling for, to not have well, the UK in the EU? The reason I would say, let's put aside the Northern Ireland, the border issue for the moment. That's a political problem, which is very serious, but let's assume that somehow a solution can be found to that problem uh, that, that, that avoids the, the, the negative consequences that I mentioned. Look at our trading relationship with the UK. Now, it's true that the UK only takes about 15% of Irish exports at the moment. It's less than the United States, which is about 25%. But if you look into our trading relationship with the UK, you start to see things that uh, create particular challenges for Ireland. Mm -hmm. For example, for Irish-owned companies, which tend to be the SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises, food companies tend to be based in different parts of the country, including rural and small towns, they're the companies that are most dependent on the British market because this is a pretty logical situation. It's that you have a small company that uh, develops in Ireland. Um, it starts to grow its business. The first place it will go looking for an export market is the nearest market because proximity is a great driver of trading relations, as we all know. And therefore, those companies are going to be particularly at risk from 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 Brexit, particularly from a hard Brexit, which might introduce tariffs and other uh, difficulties for trade between the UK and Ireland. Um, another area clearly is is our is our agricultural sector. I mean, um, Ireland exports about more than 80% of all the food we produce, beef, butter, milk, and so forth. And that's a particular area where um, tariffs are particularly high and also where um, the UK would be in a position perhaps to, to change the sources from which it, uh, it uh, secures its imports of uh, foodstuff. Now, there will be major challenges for the UK because the UK is only 60% sufficient in uh, food and therefore that would be one of the major um, difficulties that, that a hard Brexit would confront Britain with. And because these difficulties are so enormous, that's the reason why I'm 
remain of the view that a hard Brexit will be avoided, albeit that it remains a, a default option if no, no other uh, solution is found. But I think the the determination of the British Parliament uh, to avoid a hard Brexit and or sorry, a no deal Brexit and the determination of many members of the British government to do likewise, I think will ultimately result in, in some form of compromise being reached which will uh, reduce the the uh, the effects that I mentioned there for the Irish-owned companies, the small and medium-sized enterprises, and for our agricultural sector. It's very very interesting. I read, it was in The Economist, they said that both Guinness and Bailey's Irish Cream, two American favourites, are produced, you know, in Ireland, but in the whole bottling process and everything, they go back and forth across the, bo- across the border, um, which is just highly, you know, illustrative of the yeah. issues there. Um, so back to the Northern Ireland question, this has become one of the main things holding up yeah. A Brexit agreement. Um, can you just tell us a bit about, you know, for most of our listeners who may not know exactly what the issue is, um, from Ireland's perspective, if you can say what should happen here or what, what do you see um, as an ideal outcome here? The issue is that Northern Ireland has been at peace now for more than 20 years. There hasn't been serious violence in Northern Ireland since the mid-1990s. Uh, the Good Friday Agreement of 1998 introduced a new framework for peace and political progress in Northern Ireland, on the island of Ireland between North and South, and also between Ireland and uh, Britain. And part of that uh, agreement, which has, as I say, delivered 20 years of peace, and remember, the previous 20 years saw about 2,500 people lose their lives in a place with a population of one and a half, two million. Pretty major advance. When you think about it, 20 years from, say, the late, well, the early early 70s to the the mid-90s, probably two and a half, three thousand people lost their lives. Um, And then the last 20 years, you know, almost no one. So now, of course, the problem is that the the politics of Northern Ireland has, has not made quite the same amount of progress in that the Good Friday Agreement requires the two main communities, unionists who see themselves as British and nationalists who see themselves as Irish, to work together in a power-sharing agreement, a power-sharing government. And that government broke down um, uh, over two years ago, and there hasn't been a government in Northern Ireland now for more than two years. Part of the... and, And that, of course, was not caused by Brexit, I have to be clear about that. But resolving that problem has become more difficult because of Brexit. Brexit has introduced an additional complication which has made resolving the internal political problems in Northern Ireland more difficult. Okay? The other thing is that the the Northern Ireland peace process, one of the dividends of peace in Northern Ireland has been the open border on the island of Ireland. So for particularly for people of a nationalist perspective who see themselves as being Irish, the fact that there's an open border with the rest of Ireland, the fact that they are uh, they can have Irish passports and they can they are they are European Union citizens and so on, this has been a great comfort and a great um, benefit to them. And if you take that away from them, if you start to impose border controls, it immediately starts to tip the balance. And the fear we have is that that could undermine commitment of the communities to peace. And I don't suggest that there'll be a 
a um, a full a return to full scale uh, conflict in Northern Ireland. But but the if you take away if you if you change unilaterally the situation on the border, there will be those in Northern Ireland who will be very aggrieved by that, and that then produces potential um, tensions which could result in in um, some return to violence, and then you're in a kind of a slippery slope situation where, um, and that's why our government's been so steadfast over the last uh, three years in saying whatever happens, we must protect the Good Friday Agreement and we must avoid doing anything that will um, create border controls on the Isle of Ireland uh, to the detriment of peace and prosperity in, in that part of Ireland. And of course, to be clear, the British government shares that view. There's no, there's no one who wants a hard border on the island of Ireland. No one in Britain, no one in Northern Ireland, no one in um, in Ireland, no one in the European Union. The problem is that if Britain leaves the European Union without uh, some kind of deal, then Northern Ireland will be in a different customs region yeah. from the rest of Ireland. And that will create problems in that everyone's agreed there should be an open border, but how do you achieve an open border if there's a different customs regime on both sides of that border, thereby providing incentives for uh, individuals and companies to, 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 to use that border in order to, to uh, circumvent customs controls? Yeah, which is why I think one of the alternatives now being presented is there's fear that there could be a barrier in the Irish Sea instead, which would then divide... Th- England and Scotland. For the, the Except that it wouldn't be a barrier, in my view. Uh, you know, you could, you know, you you could check what's travelling across the Irish Sea from Britain to Northern Ireland. You wouldn't need to check anything going from Northern Ireland to Britain. That would right. not be of any interest to anyone. But you could check to to make sure that the open border in Ireland wasn't being exploited by companies in Britain to yeah. get mater- to get goods and into the European Union single market without going through the regulatory framework or the customs controls that would otherwise be required if you were bringing goods from a third country into the European Union. Yeah, but that idea is also not popular at all with any party in this situation, right? Well, it, it's, I mean, it's not, well, the, the, there's a majority, according to recent polls, there's a majority, a big majority in Northern Ireland in, in favour of the backstop, which is this arrangement which would ensure that, come what may, um, Britain will remain within a customs agreement with the rest of the European Union in order to prevent a border on the island of Ireland in all circumstances. Right. So th- there's a recent political article which had the subtitle, Momentum is a gathering on both sides of the border for the reunification of the island. Do you see that as a possible... Like, I'm also just curious, as an American who doesn't know a lot about this, what are the politics like in Northern Ireland? Is it still mainly highly unionist where they don't want to be reunified? Or what's going on? What do we know? Well, Northern Ireland... The reason Northern Ireland is a special case is because it's a divided uh, community. And at the moment, we're talking about uh, if you... It's, it's hard to calculate these things precisely because some people are, are, are neither unionist nor nationalist. They will say, I'm, I'm neither, I'm, I'm, I'm something different, I'm something else. There are now, for example, quite a number of, uh, of people from other parts of the European Union living in Northern Ireland, and obviously they don't fit in to the normal matrix uh, of, <coughs> of nationalism. But let's say, let's say, roughly speaking, if you include everyone uh, that has a, a unionist background... Their views may may differ in various ways. or different shades of opinion. And, and when we say unionist, we mean unionist with the United Kingdom. Yeah, that, these are people who 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 have a British identity, who see themselves as as maybe 
from Northern Ireland, but 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 British citizens and with a loyalty to to Britain, right? And then nationalists are people who um, traditionally be oriented towards an Irish identity, and in many of many cases would would, uh, would aspire either in the short term or the long term to see a united Ireland. And those two communities are there's still a small majority of of unionists over nationalists, but. The the, the uh, you know the gap is fairly narrow, right. and it continues to narrow um, as demographic changes uh, take their effect. It doesn't, of course, mean that once you get to fifty percent of the population plus one being nationalist, that you then have a, a majority for United Ireland, because it's more complicated than that. So, so, so the view of our government is that the Good Friday Agreement resolves the problem of the future constitutional status of Northern Ireland because it provides that at some point if it's it becomes clear that there's a majority in Northern Ireland in favour of a united Ireland the British government has committed to holding a referendum in Northern Ireland and to accepting the result of that referendum whatever it might be and the Irish government has said likewise that they would they would also respect and they would hold their own referendum and would respect the outcome of those two votes. Is public opinion in the republic very not, like very pro reunification? It's yeah, there is there's there's a good majority. There'd be a comfortable majority if, if there were to be a vote, depending on the circumstances. But there would be a strong majority in in uh, in favour of unity. But most people in uh, my part of Ireland, the part of Ireland that I represent, um, are not looking to force the issue. Right. Um, they they see it as something for the future. And the Good Friday Agreement does provide this for the future. And the view of my government is that this is not the time to ask that question. The question of Brexit needs to be answered. And that's a complicated question in its own right. And to throw in the question of Irish unity into the mix would not be helpful from the point of view of promoting political stability and harmony in Ireland uh, faced with these dramatic changes um, that Brexit may bring about. So, and this is this is fascinating stuff, but just to switch tack a bit and talk about a different part of your job, the fact that you're representing Ireland here in the United States, um, we want to talk about U.S.-Irish relations. So one thing that strikes me is Ireland has been attracting lots of companies, American companies over there for their favorable tax policies. Does that lead to tension between Ireland and the United States? I know there was a quote here from Donald Trump, and he said, many, many companies are going to Ireland. They're going all over. And the Washington Post said it was the only developed country in the world Trump has singled out for undermining American competitiveness. That was when the article came out, um, December 2017. Well, I, I haven't heard the, uh, you know, the president make uh, remarks of that nature. Um, our, our prime minister was here for St. Patrick's Day a couple of weeks ago, and... and uh, had a very good discussion with the president in uh, the Oval Office. Um, let me just just explain. Irish-U.S. relations go back to the 18th century when Irish people started coming here. Accelerated greatly in the 19th century with the the um, immigration into America of six million people from Ireland came here between 1840 and 1900. So a dramatic demographic uh, movement of people from Ireland to the United States, which, of course, created the community we know today as Irish-Americans. There are 33 million of them who have ticked the box in the last census to say they were Irish-Americans. Uh, and that was, and that, those people who came and their descendants developed a very um, passionate interest in 
Irish affairs and they were very supportive of Ireland's bid for independence in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And throughout history, the Irish-Americans have had a special fondness for Ireland, which maybe other communities who've come here from other parts of the world maybe haven't retained links with the, their ancestral homeland in the same way as the Irish have with Ireland. Um, during the Northern Ireland um, conflict, a lot of Irish-Americans were very active in trying to persuade the American government to, to, to take an interest in Northern Ireland, which indeed um, successive governments did and helped to bring peace to Northern Ireland. Now, that's the, 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 the people-to-people strand of the relationship. The second strand, which is really more pertinent to our, our, uh, to our conversation and Brexit and post-Brexit world, is that starting in the, the 60s, but accelerating greatly in the 90s and 2000s, significant numbers of American companies have established significant operations in Ireland. Uh, we now have 750 U.S. companies and all of the, the big household names in this country, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Facebook, Google, Apple, all of those have employ multiple thousands of people in Ireland. Like we're talking about, you know, in the case of Google, 8,000 people, uh, Apple, likewise, Intel, uh, similar numbers. So uh, these are big operations and they've used Ireland as their base for their European operations. And they came to Ireland for a variety of reasons, only one of which was our corporate tax rate of 12.5%. The main reason, I think, is because we have a location within the European Union and these country, these companies understand the need, if they're going to be global operations, to have uh, a presence within the European Union. Um, we were able to offer them a highly educated uh, English-speaking population. 50% of our adult population have third-level qualifications, university or equivalent qualifications. 60% of our school leavers go on to some kind of third-level education. So we have even by European standards, a highly educated population. This appeals to the kind of companies that we're now attracting to Ireland that need brain power rather than brawn, right? Um, and then, of course, our government has always been very um, open to investment, very, very, very uh, available, very, very um, keen to listen to US companies. And then in more recent times, what's happened is that Irish companies have started to invest in the United States because our economy has been growing so rapidly over the last five years, roughly 5% growth per annum for, for the last five years. Um, Irish companies have started to look abroad to grow their businesses because you can't grow your business in a market of 5 million people. You have to look abroad. And we've had, we now have about 500 Irish companies in the United States and, and they employ between them 100,000 people. So it's now a two-way process. So any kind of suggestion that Ireland is stealing jobs from the United States would be quite wrong on a number of counts. A, because those jobs need to be in Europe in order to make those companies internationally competitive. And B, because there are nearly as many... Irish companies with jobs with, uh, employing Americans now as there, are, as there are Irish people being employed by American companies. So I, I don't believe that, that the president has, has made those kind of comments in recent times, certainly. I haven't never heard him um, make those remarks. And I think he now understands uh, because, you know, we, 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 uh, we got the message across. That this is a mature two-way relationship between two highly developed countries that can benefit each other in important ways now and in the future. I know he's also got at least one beautiful golf course in Ireland, which I walked around last time I was there. And <laughs> I, I played it before I left, and he is very proud of it, and rightly so. It's is, a fantastic is, is course. It Do- yeah. Donegal? Okay. No, no, it's called Dune Bay. It's in County Clare. Right. It's, it's on the beach in County Clare, and it's a wonderful 
location. He's done a great job there, and uh, I played it before I left Ireland, and I was really very impressed by the whole operation. And uh, he employs about well, the company employs about a number of hundred people there. So it's a, and it's a small rural area. Where, by the way, incidentally uh, or coincidentally, Vice President Pence, his. Um, some of his ancestral roots are also in Dunbeg so the two of them happen to have uh, a uh, connection with the same small village in the west of Ireland oh, yeah, I didn't I didn't to, I did not get to play that one I played at La Hinch though which is I'm not that good at golf it was incredibly difficult yeah La Hinch is a very difficult and challenging course but we've got courses all around our we have 500 courses in Ireland which is uh, we're one of the most uh, um, attractive places in the world for golf and uh, more and more Americans uh, coming to Ireland now we had 2 million Americans came to Ireland uh, last year, uh, 10% of all the Americans who went to Europe last year went to Ireland. And considering we only have about 1% of the population of, of Europe, uh, that's an extraordinary figure. Now, not all of them played golf, but many of them indeed did. And I keep, whenever I am in Ireland playing golf, I always run into lots of Americans, all of whom uh, tell me how happy they are to be there and how much they're enjoying our, our fantastic golf courses. We saw a lot of Americans too, maybe even more than Irishmen. And we were also <laughs> in a, the golfing village. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, we're almost out of time. We don't want to keep you too long, so maybe one or two more questions. We are huge fans of the Irish beer, Guinness. What yes. is your favorite American beer? That's a very good question. Um, I, 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 I really like Sam Adams. Oh. I, I like that. That's one I've had. One of the things I like about, I like about America, and it's the same in Ireland now, is that wherever you go, you can drink local beers. Right. Now, I'm, I'm not a huge beer drinker, but I like to sample. If I go somewhere, I like to sample the local, you know, the local brew. Uh, and uh, but Sam Adams is one I've had a number of times and always quite, quite like it. So I hope I'm not sort of uh, breaching any advertising uh, <laughs> no, ethic you may I mean, have here. I'm the, partial to Coors Light, but uh, Sam Adams is good. Yeah, I mean, I, I, but I, but I also, I, I, when I go anywhere, if I go to anywhere when I'm offered a, a beer, I always say, give me the local one. Now, of course, I was recently uh, visiting the new Guinness Brewery in Baltimore. Guinness have built the, the first brewery in the United States. They've built for many, many years, and it's in Baltimore. And they have a wonderful visitor center there um, where you can go and enjoy a whole range of Guinness products, only one of which, which is brewed in, in that brewery. That's Guinness Blonde. But the other um, beers are all brewed in Ireland and imported into the United States. And it's great to see. By the way, the other big success story we've had here in recent years is Irish whiskey. Uh, consumption is increasing by about um, 15% a year at the moment wow. in America and it's becoming a major export uh, product now from Ireland to the United States and uh, 10 years ago we had four distilleries now we have 23 and the number is growing all the time and that reflects increasing demand around the world for Irish whiskey especially in the United States One final note to end it on as we mentioned in the intro you're a big fan of poetry what would yeah. you say is who, who's your favourite Irish poet and what would you say is your favourite verse of poetry? Well, um, I, um, I've been tweeting poetry now for the last uh, four years. I did it initially in 2015 to uh, commemorate the 150th anniversary of the birth of William Butler Yeats, the great Irish poet, right. Nobel Prize winner. Um, and towards the end of the year, I was planning to, 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 to drop it. And then I started getting people coming to me and saying, you must keep it going, we really like it. And I get a lot of, now I've been doing for the last three years, other Irish poets, um, Yeats and Seamus Heaney and all the other various poets, uh, including contemporary poets, but, but going back to Jonathan Swift and Oliver Goldsmith uh, and, and so forth, and right through the centuries. I, so I, so I, I pick a piece of poetry every morning and I tweet it, you know, uh, and, I, and I, get, I get extremely good 
good responses. Uh, one poem that I tweeted there a couple of years ago has had 110,000 views, wow. which must be, I mean, a world record for uh, for any piece of poetry. I'd imagine. <laughs> well, certainly, I mean, it would, you know, I mean, that would be a huge circulation for any uh, poet uh, either today or in the past. But but my my favorite poet is really William Butler Yeats. Um, I, I did my uh, my master's thesis on Yeats uh, way way back uh, in Cork in the 1970s, and I suppose um, the you know the poem that I uh, that I think is most um, shall we say pertinent to the work I do as an ambassador is, and the poem is most widely quoted of any poem in in the English language would be the Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. That's not the whole poem, but that's... Wow. Uh, <laughs> Definitely an opposite. But, but, I, I mean, it's, it's very powerful. And, and, of course, it ends with this, um, you know, the rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. So Yeats wrote that poem um, at the end of the First World War, at the beginning of the Irish War of Independence, when the world was in a, a really, you know, troubled state with lots of revolutions and, and so on, up, up, uh, upheavals. My own response to that is, is to be happy about how the centre has held... Mm over the last 70 years and I I hope that we can somehow manage to to keep that centre intact and I think that's why uh, I like to quote that uh, poem as a kind of a as a kind of a warning about um, you know um, the risks of of moving away from the centre and embracing populist recipes that may turn out to be cul-de-sacs so anyone who wants to follow me on Twitter, my Twitter account is at Dan Mulhall and you'll get a daily dose of Irish poetry from me from now until uh, I uh, finish my Twitter career. Well, ho- hopefully you'll tweet out the link to this podcast when it comes out. I and- certainly will. I certainly will. I certainly will. <laughs> well, terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you, as always, for listening. As a reminder, you can send any feedback to us by emailing banter at AEI.org, or you can find us on Twitter, where you can also read all of our hot takes. Speaking of hot takes, Max, did you see ESPN's ranking of the Elite Eight teams that they published before the final round, before the Elite Eight started on Friday? No, I didn't. Okay, well, they, they re-ranked, <laughs> after the Swiss team, they re-ranked all the Elite Eight teams based on who they thought was going to be the best. I thought I didn't even click on it. I figured it'd be Duke slipped a few rankings because, you know, they should have lost to Tech and UCF. Turns out they ranked Duke number one and UVA number eight, and they are now eating crow. <laughs> it's a conspiracy against UVA, but that did not stop us. For those of you who did not see arguably the best game of the year. Of all time. Uh, of all time. UVA got into a shootout with Purdue, number three seed. Um, Purdue star Carson Edwards hit 42 points. Uh, I think, it was it a record? I don't, he hit ten three pointer. I don't know. He set the record for most threes in the tournament in only like four games. And the pre- taking like half court shots with hands in his face. Still yeah. Well, when he so also for, for those who don't know, our coach Tony Bennett, uh, God bless him, is a very stoic man. And this dude, what's his last name? Edwards, the point guard. Person, I don't even want to know his name. He, the Purdue guy, banked in a three pointer with like five seconds left, and Tony Bennett had to take out his to take play the lead sheet by two points to take the lead by two points, and then our coach, you know, ripped up his play sheet in the only display of emotion that I think he's ever shown on, on court. Yeah, but then we came out and we hit what he hit the first foul shot. Jerome, yeah, made a free throw. 
Miss, missed the second one, got the rebound, pass it to our star, Mamadi Diakite, um, and he took a deep shot, well, 12-foot shot, over a guy who's 7-foot-3. I didn't, still, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, 7-foot-3 still went in, and we played it overtime where we could continue to beat them by five points. Yeah. The bottom line is ESPN lies. ESPN is fake news. Fake news. They've been fake news ever since the Deflategate uh, non-scandal in 2014, whatever it was, when they totally lied about Tom Brady. And th- th- but this just there's we still get no respect though. I read a piece on the Ringer today that was talking about all their games, and here's what they said about UVA. The game had five extra minutes and still had less basketball in it than your average 40-minute game. That's Virginia. They sucked the fun out of life and the life out of opposing teams. They win methodically and efficiently, but they don't do joy. Okay, and anyone who know anyone who can appreciate sport appreciates Virginia basketball. Yeah. We are the most efficient team on offense and defense. I saw Ken Palm say we're the most efficient team, the second most efficient team in the last 18 years of college basketball. Hmm. Suffocate them on defense. Is that good? Yeah. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Suffocate teams on defense, hit threes, slam the ball, a couple seven vo- got a seven footer to do that for us. And we're just we're fun to watch. I yeah, and I, I highly I, recommend it. Saturday at six oh eight. Saturday yeah, six PM ish or so. Six oh eight. I think it's six oh eight or six oh nine PM. Uh, us versus Auburn. Auburn. Who do you who do you want to so I mean obviously we Auburn's corrupt, Auburn. you know, they cheat. Yeah. So I've heard. Yeah. And no, this is out never that's Alabama. But <laughs> they're bad. SEC bad. If we win, who do you want to meet in the championship? I've got respect for Michigan State. I don't know anything about Texas Tech. They have a good Michigan, defense, too. They have a good defense. I think they're kind of like a subpar UVA. Mm. But I don't know. I mean, Michigan State, they took us down back-to-back years in the tournament, I think 2014 and 2015. Yeah, my yeah, it was it was bad. I kind of I want to play. I mean, I'm more afraid of them, but I also want their revenge on them. I, also, I owe an apology. I don't know if I said this on the show last week. I owe an apology to Kyle Guy and Kihei Clark, who I've lost all faith in until last game. They are both fantastic players. We're only here because of them. And Mamadi's still, I think, my MVP for the for the tournament. But Kyle Guy and Kia Clark, I'm sorry if I ever doubted you. What a team. If you guys want to see Joy, go watch the highlights of the other night and watch our coach ripping down the net. Yeah. Life at its finest. I just made that my new Twitter banner. Did you? Tony, <laughs> Tony Bennett with the, with the net. At Matt Weinsett. Yeah, Matt <laughs> underscore Weinsett. <laughs> Follow me on Twitter. All right, we'll be back. Uh, this has gone on long enough, I think. We'll be back next week with another guest to be determined. It's a surprise. And hopefully uh, next time we're talking to you, UVA will be national champions. Fingers crossed. And if not, well, <laughs> if not, if not banter's canceled forever. Eddie Eifert, who secured it. Two-point game. Jerome, short, back tap, Diakite, a race for it, into the hands of Clark, got a chance to win it here, up the front, here's Diakite for the win, and goes! For the tie, Diakite squares it at 70!